Welcome back to the Wolf of Country podcast. Today on the show, Jono Riddler, an ultra marathon swimmer, something that a person does that makes my hands just sweat thinking about it, that lives his life in the open ocean and swimming. And yes, no, I do not want to do it. But in the 2nd and 3rd of May, did a New Zealand record of the longest nonstop open water swim of almost 100 kilometers, 99 Kilometer swim over 33 hours and still waiting for the confirmation of the uh, the straight line distance of around 95 kilometers. But either both of them are still batshit crazy of the distance and the time. And I can't even imagine what you've gone through. And I'm excited to have you on the show to talk you through about that journey and what got you to that. And Jono, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, mate. It's uh, it's great to be here and look forward to talking all about that. <laughs> Um, we spoke about obviously um, just off air. You know, most of your off off the back of the show, there was so much publicity across New Zealand. You were you were doing interview to interview to interview. So you know, every one of um, my fellow podcasters uh, between two beers, Dom Harvey, most of the guys um, that sort of uh, in my scene, you've been across their shows having a chat. But it was really close um, and tangible, uh, close and tangible to the event. And I know when you spoke specifically to the guys on between two beers that you you said, hey, you hadn't been able to go through this emotional state and feel what it felt like. I want to start the show first as we're now over a month, or no, sorry, over two months past it, and talk on, in hindsight now, I've run, I'm going through the events, how you feel and all the rest of it, and then we'll go a little bit into like what got you into it and mm. why, yeah, uh, totally. all the rest of it. So, you know, two months on, you know, how do you, how you feel about the event? Yeah, interesting because, as you say, immediately afterwards <laughs> there was this recency and I was able to look at it with a slightly different perspective of probably more feeling the physical pain at that mm-hmm. point and and not having worked through the emotions and, and what it actually meant. And two months on, uh, I'm still carrying some memories for sure of, of the swim and I've got my lasting physical, <laughs> physical uh, um, memory of it uh, with this wrist injury. But uh, I think it, there's less less specific and less distinct memories of that of uh, that event, but uh, what I've come to uh, come to terms with, in a sense, is that it's a lot more normalised for me, uh, for me now. Mm-hmm. So uh, immediately afterwards, it might have felt, as you say, quite crazy mm-hmm. to to have done something like this, even for me, as as I was the one that was doing it. But immediately after reflecting back, it was like this is. This is nuts, but now it's almost a it's a part of who I am. It's a part of my identity that I've done this thing <laughs> and that I know I'm capable of it. And for that reason, it has become normalized in yeah. a way. I think that in looking back in, in some of the events that followed immediately, like this swim has been quite pivotal for me <laughs> in, in my journey. And I think that has been interesting to see because at the time when I was – uh, and very much in the thick of it during and immediately after, I wasn't able to reflect on that in the same way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we can talk through it with the different swims that I've done along the journey is that each one of those has kind of propelled me forward as a person uh, and has been really important for me in, in my journey. And mm-hmm. I think this one probably supercharged that in a sense but is still like a marker yeah. along the journey for me. And I, that, that's, I think, is, is one of the biggest things as, as I've reflected back is that it, um, it's another important step in, in where I'm heading on this path. Do you miss that moment, that chaos, 
that sort of I can imagine for I can know I can imagine the I know the emotional state you went through going up to and we'll get into that and I know your the mental state going during the event again a big a, a chatting point but coming off something and I know you're big on strong on visualization you hit it and coming through it and in the sort of chaos will win the positive side of it and all that and that energy and feeding on it I've had a couple of those moments through my career in the last few years through major events and um, and so forth. And I know I look back of it now, like I'm going to another event in a few months' time because that happened to me over uh, three years ago. And it's like I almost crave that moment again. I almost crave that. Not that I want to go through the pain and go through all the rest of it. You crave that chaos afterwards of that just the the, um, the community behind you and almost everyone know where you are and that and um, that, that moment of like, cool, I've done something. It meant something. It meant something to other people. Um, and now it's, as it goes further along, you almost want to go back to to that moment, not for selfish reasons, but for almost like making other people think about stuff the right way or trying to make them change their lives. Mm. Yeah, is, that, that, is that something for you? I know we're only two months on, so it might not be, but for the other swims and other events that you've done? I think what, um, what you experience is uh, very much being alive in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. So – you're there's a lot going on it's it's very dynamic mm. and you do feel as you say very connected to the people that are involved with that event and and wider beyond that uh i think for me it, it's it's always been that there's this big build up of tension as i build up towards mm. any kind of a goal and working away in the shadows and grinding away and then you come to this moment, and for me, with these ultra marathon swims, it's time defined. It's over a specific period mm-hmm. of time. This most recent swim was thirty-three hours, and there's this almost release of that tension that mm-hmm. you've been building up, and with that, this amazing kind of euphoria of having gone through all this hardship in the lead up, like you're talking about mm-hmm. with organising an event. I'm sure that's very similar. There's a lot of parallels. And you're doing the work, you're doing the work, and then all of a sudden you're doing the thing. So you've been visualizing, building up towards this thing for so, so long, and then you do it. And it's just this amazing sense of accomplishment and confidence that you get off the back of that. And so, yes, I I very much enjoy being in that moment Mm -hmm. for – for those reasons and and others. And if I were to live life in every moment like that, I think it would make that less special. Yeah. So it's not like... Uh, yes, wouldn't, be like a, wouldn't be a sweet. Yeah, yeah. And if you can build, I think, a life that's punctuated by moments like mm-hmm. that, then you do get that real sense of the journey of the of the peaks and troughs and, and it does make it quite special when when something like that comes around yeah that's amazing um so let's let's go back to you know the beginning part of your journey and story like swimming ultra marathon swimming what got you into how did you fall into that was you know what was the story behind that and then you obviously since 2019 till the 100k swim now you've done multiple long distance each literally time almost doubling it as it goes along the path let's talk me through that journey yeah it has kind of been a falling into it as, (laughs) as much as anything else if I go right, right back, mm-hmm. I wasn't much of a swimmer growing up. I did learn to swim lessons between about the ages of eight and 12, mm-hmm. but really didn't enjoy it. 
Uh, I wasn't a pool swimmer by any means and didn't do competitive swimming. And as soon as I was able to petition my parents to stop pool swimming, then I was out of there and focusing in on sports that I actually enjoyed, like football, for mm-hmm. example. So I was kind of at a leaning towards sports and activity. But in the background, we also spent a lot of time in the ocean growing mm-hmm. up. So my dad was a surf lifesaver. Mm-hmm. He did sur- surfing from about the age of 15, and he's now six decades <laughs> on from there and still going. So the ocean was a strong part of our childhood, mm-hmm. and we always had had that theme. But it wasn't until I was 21 that I would find myself back in swimming and mm-hmm. and then eventually ocean swimming. So I was living in Canada at the time and I was snowboarding up a local hill. It was a few days after my 21st birthday and I had a really bad snowboarding accident. Mm-hmm. I fell onto my right shoulder and sustained a grade three AC separation. Oof. And uh, that wasn't so good for my <laughs> snowboarding at the time, but on returning to New Zealand about four months later, I used the pool and swimming as a way of rehabbing it and getting it back to full strength or near to and mobility back into it as well. And then later that same year, so this is 2011, just to timestamp that, later that same year, my dad and brother were doing an open water swim across Auckland's Harbour, a three kilometre there or thereabouts. Yeah, it's about 280, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, correct. From Bayswater marina to the viaduct and i decided to sign up (laughs) hadn't done any kind of open water swimming uh, events prior to that i had done a little bit of swimming up and down point chev beach but that was about it and so i i I decided to sign up for it and fast forward to the date of uh, start date of of that event Mm -hmm. i'm in the water i'm treading water waiting for the hooter to go off it's a deep water start which means that instead of running in from the beach mm-hmm. you're you are just in the water and the hooter goes uh it's just chaos, chaos. At the start. <laughs> <laughs> and there's legs and arms going all over the place and i'm swimming over the top of people yeah. and they're swimming over the top of me and i swim in that state for this really panicked state for about 200 meters or mm-hmm. so before i'm forced to put my head up because i can't breathe mm-hmm. i'm having a a panic attack and I have this moment where I can either pull out I just chuck my hand up and, and get rescued by the lifeguards around me or keep going on the other hand and so I recollected myself I breathed and then just decided to keep going and I made it to the other side and that experience on completing that like we had talked about before the emotion yeah. of completing that was a, an amazing sense of accomplishment and I got hooked. Mm-hmm. Like I, I wanted to find out what more I could do. And then eventually that built up to my first 10 kilometer distance in 2016. Mm-hmm. So about five years later in the background, I'd been training for a running marathon. Mm-hmm. Didn't work out so well. I got injured, decided to bin running. Mm-hmm. And so just focused in on the swimming and, and then that 10 kilometer swim again, it was just uh, a difficult time lots of little challenges, made it to the end, couldn't help but think what's next, and yeah. then signed up for Cook Straight on the back of that. And that really launched the, the path. Yeah, the path into ultra marathon swimming. And I've never 
thought of it as falling into it, but I think in a, in a lot of ways I did. But at the same time, having that, a lot of things that in retrospect you can look back and, and say, oh, it, it makes a lot of sense that this is the path that I went down, you know, like the background and mm-hmm. being around the ocean, the desire for adventure, uh, the leaning towards endurance sports, like all of these things just combined into something that made a lot of sense for me. There's a real interesting journey. There's this, um, it's one of the, I think it's one of the most unique activities that um, I think humble, control, and bring people out in different ways. And that's a community of surfing or what it stands for and so forth. Whether you do it or don't, but whether you, you raised around it or your parents did it and stuff. And I've, speak, I've spoken to and seen so many people that either AR surfers or in the surfing community, you know, I've lived out west uh, where we both do. So there's, Every third person is a, a beach person of some sort. And there's that weird way, like you said, your dad started when he was 15 and he's, you know, still going, still going now. And it, it like bleeds into the next generation or the community around there. And it's, it, and it's a weird one because you always find, um, community that behind people that are raised around a surfing community, there's always something unique and special and they always do something peculiar and they always get something back to and being real, let's go who are they always go always go back to something like more mother earthy type vibes, right? And I and it's and it's an interesting one because I've always seen that and it's you can always always take it back. And and it's just whether you've been raised been humbled by the ocean to understand and respect it and therefore you want to go back and almost want to do the same thing and respect it more and then help in community further is is this something you've ever seen that like you said you've right you've been raised around the beach and the ocean is there is there almost like a calling to you from that yeah I, th- I think communities that live close to the ocean have a different perspective on the world mm-hmm almost more chilled out yeah. because they see the power of the ocean. They've been, hum- they've been humbled. They've been humbled. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was humbled multiple times when I was growing up and it was a lot of fun, but going into the waves and just getting absolutely smashed by mm-hmm. dumpers that, <laughs> that were going right onto the shore. And you do get a strong sense that there is something a lot bigger than you. Mm-hmm. There's a force that you can't control. And I think we have built our society around trying to control as much as we can. (laughs) Control everything. It's such a stark contrast when you look at, say, like Auckland City Mm -hmm. and the environment and just the vibration of Auckland City versus when you go to a beach or... Yeah, or Mirawai communities, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, mean, I'm assuming as you go further out, it's even, you know, more... A, a different compared to the the PR and the Mirawai community mm. as well. The more disconnected you yeah. get from urban society, the mm. more probably the closer you are to your original nature in a sense. <laughs> so I I really I get a strong connection to people that have a an appreciation for the water mm-hmm. and for the ocean that and that have been raised around that. And I think they understand me and I understand them in a way that I couldn't be able to relate to somebody who hasn't had those same experiences. Mm-hmm. And if I were to go up to another country, maybe somewhere in Asia where it's very densely populated, lots mm-hmm. of city, that it would be really hard for me to not only culturally relate to somebody like that, mm-hmm. but just in terms of our experiences. So we're lucky, I think, in New Zealand that we're always close to 
nature, whether it be the bush, yeah. the ocean, lakes, rivers, that we do still have that strong connection to nature and to our inner beings as well. Because it, the further that we get out of it and that we put ourselves as separate from nature, the further that I think we get from our who we are and who we can mm -hmm. become as well as people. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, as 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 being a father with with the two you know young young teenagers um, through the years, I grew up on the beach back in um, Cape Town, South Africa. I was a lifeguard myself many many years ago. A lot a lot uh, fewer cages than I am now. So I grew up on the beach and had that whole community. Um, and in coming year, obviously the West Coast beaches are a little bit uh, psychotic. Let's just put it, <laughs> put it poli uh, politely. Um, you know, so I originally for years and years wanted to uh, you know sign my kids up to life saving. The wife's like, no, she doesn't like the West Coast beaches. Just they're so dangerous. But then I would take every summer, uh, you know, I'd take the kids down to the beach. And the first few times, like they'll go in and they get dumped by the, the, the you know, the, the waves mm. at Mirawai or something like that. But it's funny because like we'll do those adventures or we'll go do big bush walks and the kids will come out, let's say on the beach, they'll come out and they, they won't be happy because they got dumped or my son's crying and my daughter's upset. But the funny thing is like 48 hours later, they turn around like, Dad, can we go back? <laughs> like, t yeah. like, you know, and, and you see, you see that, 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 that trueness with like, with um, going out in the wild and walking in, in those adventures. Like we did a big bush walk, one of the ones, um, oh, it was before during the gap in, uh, in COVID, right? Everyone started doing bushwalks, right? Because that's the only, one of the things you could do. And we did this one and it was like two, maybe three hours long. We were shattered. The kids were tired. It was like we felt horrible at the moment. But like the next day they're like, can we go again? <laughs> and it was like, what are you talking about? There was like, did you enjoy it? At the, they're like, no, not at the moment. But when we think back of it, it was like, oh, it was pretty, it was like really fun and stuff. Right. And then there's like this weird sort of calling onto it. Um but I think as society, we miss that, that we need to go out in New Zealand, <clears throat> excuse me, or in Auckland, where we've got so much access in our, our outside of the city life. You've got the beaches, you've got the walks, you've got things that take you away from the, the grey noise. Um, and then you'll feel like, you'll realise like, oh, cool, that's actually quite nice. Let's go do more of it. And it brings back to mm. what's important to your, your core, or your sort of caveman mentality. Yeah. And the other part I think that's important about that is we always talk about this mental health crisis mm -hmm. and one of the easiest and most effective ways of tackling some kind of a mental health issue mm -hmm. that you're working through is actually just to get out in nature mm -hmm. and leave your phone at home or do something like that and realize that uh, it just puts you into a different space. So I think that's really powerful and, and we're blessed that we're, we have the opportunity to be able to do that. And I think for me, spending a lot of time not only swimming, which has its own benefits, but being out in the ocean, mm -hmm. I find that kind of no matter what I come across, if I am going through some kind of a mental health challenge mm -hmm. or or something that I've always got something that I can come back to. And that is something for me that I'm I'm really grateful for. And I just hope that other people that that uh, live around here and, and live around the world can see the same and, and – get the same opportunities uh, so that they can get out of their own heads once in a while, you know. Totally. Let's go back to you decide or how you decide I'm going to swim 100 Ks mm -hmm. or swim some ridiculous distance for for this big one in May. Well, how was that decision made and how did you communicate it to your wife and your, your, your tribe before going public? Yeah. 
So after the 10K swim, I had a few other, yep. not, not filler swims, because <laughs> I think that kind of undermines them in a way, but yeah, other, other big swims. And so I'd built up to my longest swim being 45 mm-hmm. kilometers, which was from Matapuri Beach to the Poor Knights Islands and back, which was the first undertaking of that route as a as a double crossing. Mm-hmm. It had been swum before from the Poor Knights Islands back to Matapuri, but never never the other direction and never as a double crossing. So that that was my longest swim. And then off the back of that, I knew that I wanted to be building up to this challenge to swim from Great Barrier Island mm. back to Auckland. I first wrote about the idea of swimming that route back in 2019, and it was only a few months after swimming Cook Strait. Mm-hmm. But I had this connection to Great Barrier Island. My parents met there. We would spend summers there growing up, and I just thought it would be really unique and cool to be the first person to explore and adventure mm-hmm. that route. And so at the time, I was thinking of swimming from somewhere on Great Barrier, like the south uh, southwest coast of Great Barrier Island back to Takapuna. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the route that I had in my mind, and that, that would be about 85 kilometers. But then when we the we being myself and Live Ocean, when we started talking yep. about this, I decided that it would actually be more impactful and more powerful if we could make it a hundred kilometers mm-hmm. swim. And so that that's yep. where the idea came from. And it was also for me, it was the allure of this massive personal <laughs> challenge. So it, it, it morphed from being, not just an, an 85 kilometer swim, <laughs> but from being an 85 kilometer swim to a hundred yep. kilometer swim. And, and then we started looking at different routes that would allow us to achieve yeah, that. Yeah. And, and what we settled on at the end of the day was going around the back of little barrier through territory passage mm-hmm. and then on to narrow neck from there. Yeah. Mm. And your wife, Supportive? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I, no, I, I no, didn't really no, go through that. Yeah, no, no, no. That's all good. I was yeah. saying, yeah. I, I mean, she's obviously seen you do all the distances before, but when you yeah. come up with this this next one, which is next level, you know, crazy mm. to put it politely for most human beings, she was like, "Cool, yeah." What was what was her view? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's a good question because I think with somebody who's going to be really close to you mm-hmm. on the journey, you do need to get that consent in a sense. <laughs> so I've I've learned over time that, and I think for Cook Straight, I didn't actually properly talk to her before <laughs> signing up. <laughs> that was a bit of a mistake and she pulled me up on that. But I've learned that the best way to get her engaged and, and bought into it because it's a pretty significant sacrifice, not only for me in terms of the training that, mm-hmm. that will lead up to one of these ultra marathon swims, it's also a sacrifice for her. Mm-hmm. And so I need to get her on side and make sure that she's comfortable with what I'm thinking about and planning before actually starting mm-hmm. to put it into motion. So I think that groundwork, that foundation of that agreement and backing and support is really important. And then it makes everything else easier from that point. So I still need to make sure that I'm keeping up my side of the bargain with whatever we've talked about prior to, to make sure that she doesn't feel like I'm taking the piss, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so do, still 
doing all my chores around the house, still still being a husband, right? Yeah. <laughs> as much as I can be, yeah. right? And uh, as long as we've got that understanding, and I'm keeping true to what I've said, I mm. will do. Then she'll continue to support me through not only that journey but also the ones that follow. And uh, it is really important for me to have that support. What she also provides is not just the agreement like the consent to be able to do it but actually the emotional support as yep. i go through as well because it it's difficult mm-hmm. doing this kind of stuff training for hours and hours and being in a fatigued state and having those self-doubts and needing people around you that you can actually talk to mm-hmm. about those things and sarah's been pretty powerful in that sense to help me in working through those things and and when I have those moments of self-doubt because that's inevitable yeah. that she can say yes but you've actually evidenced and proven that you can do this so why why are you having these thoughts mm-hmm. you know but obviously it's harder for you to work to through that it, yourself yeah, yeah. And it, it comes along right when we when we go down paths or journeys that we're trying to take on in each one of our lives no matter a small beggar days, right? Obviously, uh, you know there is that. There's sometimes that that self doubt, or as you, or um, depending if you have the imposter syndrome, right, which is quite commonly termed um, in the last couple of years, has come out as well. And it's uh, sometimes it's just uh, I don't know if it's a weird way that um, I, I use I speak by the caveman mentality quite a bit because I think we still why there. I don't know if it's that that caveman coming back and just making sure you've been more safe than you need to then. You, you're thinking more on the safe side than um, the advanced side. And and because we don't understand it, now we've, we've built up this imposter syndrome terminology and use of it, but it's actually our brain just going, hey, are you sure? Are you, are you double sure you know what you're doing? Mm. And you just got to show me that you know what you're doing, then I'll leave you alone. And the brain will disappear and then won't, you won't be questioning yourself because it's funny that you go through that moment of like judgment or, or, or not sure, and then once you've worked through it, if you work through it correctly – goes away. It doesn't come back, right? It might come back at a later stage for something else, but all of a sudden it's like, hey, I've answered something and now uh, I'm not being questioned by myself because I'm slowly starting to work through it. And it's just weird. Our, our mind, our body just taps us on the shoulder every now and then goes, hey, are you sure? Mm. What are you doing? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and talking about imposter syndrome, like yeah, I've had pretty significant levels of imposter syndrome <laughs> since, but it's uh, just working through yeah. why like why why am i getting these thoughts of being an imposter and where you, is you, that actually you, where is that actually coming from like for example this uh, talking to you right now mm-hmm. i'm like well why would lawrence actually want to talk to me mm-hmm. you know and, and so i get i get thoughts like that and why would somebody want to read about my story or watch my story mm-hmm. What have I actually got to offer? So these are the kind of thoughts that come into my head, and I, I'm sure they come into everybody's head <laughs> yeah. as well. Uh, I think the more I've kind of come into the public eye, in a sense, the stronger that's been as well, is that the impact of of what I'm doing has had a wider reach, but also at the same time I can't help but think, like, why should actually anybody – care yeah. <laughs> at the same time that's been a difficult thing to work through but I, I again sorry just mm. to finish off that thought but to um to your point is that 
you just have to work through it. Mm-hmm. And eventually that kind of nagging thought that's in your head does disappear. Yep. And it becomes it becomes like a new normal in a way, right? You just accept that that's how things are and uh, with the right, right kind of guidance and counselling of, well, why would somebody want to listen to me? Well, maybe it actually helps them in a way. Mm-hmm. And rationalising it that you can move through those that that uh, those negative thoughts. Yeah, it, it could be an interesting one. From you know, a lot a lot of people that come into a situation in their life when they do something unique, special, and they come out. Um, and it could be something that we just raised with that we don't get shown as a kid or understanding that hey. You know, not saying that your voice counts. I don't want to go down that channel um, that, hey, um, what you say counts or that I don't want to open that can of worms. Hmm. But I'm talking about in the sense of having it that your story can mean something to someone else. That's a little bit, uh, you know, better in that sense. Because we're not raising that going, hey, by the way, John, your story or what you've gone through might mean something just to one other person and understanding that that can make a difference to them. And we normally realize that either the good or the bad way as we grow up, we do something and we're going, oh, shit, we've pissed someone off. Now we're like, fuck, what do we do? Because I've never been taught I've negatively impacted someone mm. from what I've done. And then if, you, if you're strong-willed or stuff, you can sort of work through it. If you don't, you go back in your shower and then it's just negatively, negative reinforcement and it feeds yourself more. Um, it's the same way where we're not raised of going, oh, look, here, you've actually impacted someone positive. And then that's when that imposter comes in going, but why? Well, I'm not special. I'm not unique. But it's we, f- we forget that we are unique in our own individual self, but a lot of what we go through, so do other people go through. And I think it's something we've got to, um, you know, I talk to my kids a little bit about that, like the struggles you go through or the problems you have. As much as you, you your own identity, there's other people out there that's going through something very similar. Um, and your understanding of it or you saying something about it could help that person as well. And that's just sort of something that we we almost need to, you know, bring in our in our in our youth and our community more of I believe more than them standing there and going, listen to me. If I want to say this, you should listen to me. It's not that. It's about understanding themselves to a wider tribe. Totally. Mm. Yeah. Totally. It's a, it's a weird one because we're in a weird space at the moment with the world and, you know, the with going out and having a message. Where everybody has the opportunity to broadcast in some way, but is is that message always going to be impactful to somebody Correct. Yeah, correct. I mean, we had a little funny one, um, and I look over at the lid. Um, Guy will, will know this. I had Richie Harcourt on the show a good few months ago, and we went down this rabbit hole talking about how we live in a community now where if I tell you that this lid is pink, you've got to trust me that this lid is pink, but it's actually blue. And just because I come out and say I've got a belief in this way or this is the way I see the world, you can't judge me on the way I see it. And it's just a – it's more of an American overseas one than we struggle as much as we struggle here in the New Zealand side. Mm. But it is a sort of a way that we're allowing um, our community to say things but not understand things. Do you think that's come about from the cancel culture as well, is that you can't that, put something out there that is able to be challenged because you'll be shut down as a result of it? 100%. Uh, totally a, a piece out of it. I know we're getting a bit sidetracked. We'll come back to some soon. <laughs> uh, totally, I totally believe cancer culture is becomes part of it. And now uh, cancer culture has now become made a problem that people that, people that want to say something that's beneficial are in fear to say something that is beneficial. Mm. So people that's talking shit will talk shit. 
but people that want to have a benefit or make a change, sometimes, especially if they're a smaller person, identity, company, or whatever, is fearful that if they come out and say this, they'll be cancelled or they'll be shunned because of saying that. But but some random Tom, Dick, and Harry can come out and run his mouth out and uh, the world allows them to do it. Mm. And... And it's a weird one because we're looking at society. We go back a couple of generations where sitting in a car with a kid and baby and no baby seat was fully acceptable. Sitting in a car and uh, with a baby in your seat and smoking next to them and drinking and and having that social etiquette was totally acceptable. Uh, we talk a couple of hundred years ago and how things were totally different. But, but and the world evolves and we 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 evolving now. But now we come to a stage that hey, what they did. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, half a generation or a generation wasn't acceptable, but we are now going to burn you for it. We're the only, we, we seem to be the only generation or the only time in, where we can find in history that we're going to burn you for your history mm. now. Mm-hmm. So something you said, Jono, when you were 18 years old, now, you know, years and years later, today, you're going to get in trouble for it and we're going to cancel you yeah, and dig it out and that stuff. And it just seems ludicrous. Mm. Um, and it's just fueled to this chaotic fire of what I, what I used to, you know, um, growing up in. And then, as you said, mental health challenges mm. in, in this country and the wider world. Totally. But I, I think on that, in terms of the cancel culture, and I'll bring it back to the swimming in a way, <laughs> um, was that uh, following the, the recent swim that, that, mm-hmm. that we did from Great Barrier Island back to Auckland, it was a very strong message, right, which mm-hmm. was that ocean conservation yeah. is important and that we need to focus in on it and that we need to give it space and mm-hmm. time and energy and resources to correct that. And I don't think anybody cancelled that message. Mm-hmm. So in reflecting on that, I think – some messages are obviously going to be more controversial than others. Yep. But if you have a message that is really pure, maybe it's a sign in a sense that if nobody's cancelling it, maybe it's something that really resonates to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, it's, it's an interesting one of what message is going to be accepted and what's not. Um, I know you spoke about, um, again, on the Pretend to Beer show, you spoke about the support and the drive of when it started and going into it, you know, how the community built up and how people are watching. And and the question was, you know, why did you think that happened? And I was thinking to myself, the thought pattern is there is the the portion of community that truly is inspired by what you're doing and wants to make a difference and wants to resonate that. And we want to see a human being doing something that we shouldn't physically be doing, right, and cheering you on. My negative side that I see in society goes is people that are hating what you're doing and want you to fail, and and therefore they're still watching because as soon as they as soon as you turn around and do fail, they go yeah well I knew that China was never going to achieve that, and we see that in and out, and 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 it's funny you see the in society when you start seeing human beings doing things outside the box like the big performance. Let's talk about like you know in sport you didn't swimming. You talk about the guys like David Goggins. Um, James Lawrence, Iron Cowboy. You start seeing the um, what's the guy that just ran? We just spoke about him on Friday uh, with Harry. Uh, the, the, he did in the New Zealand. They just ran for like thirty or forty hours nonstop, um, doing the, one of those loop challenges in the runs. Once you start going through and you don't fail, then people are like, "Oh shit, I need to now pay attention because mm-hmm. I thought you were going to fail, and I was cheering for it." And then you go through it and you're like, 
wow, okay, maybe there's something more. And then all of a sudden there's a, this convert of more people coming over because you are breaking the mold of what is normal. Mm. And it gives me a, so the positive people are there and the negative people slowly start converting over and it just starts bringing And then if you've got a message there, it just starts bubbling up stronger and stronger and stronger as you go on. That's interesting. You know, I, have, I haven't really thought about it that way in terms of the, it's like the tall poppy yeah. syndrome side I, of I would, right? I would totally think in the New Zealand Australian space, there would have been a portion of tall poppy mm. and that would have built up a lot more. Or, no, no, don't, this is, I, was, I don't want to say this. It would have not built up more of the publicity, but a portion of what I believe was there was people watching for you to fail. Yeah. And that sucks and it's shit and it shouldn't exist and tall poppy is a fucking problem in this country we need to get rid of. Mm. Um, but I think by you knocking it out of the park and doing what you did, you would have converted those people over and gone, okay, cool, John is the man, uh, what he did and what he stands for and now resonates to the message and, you know, like you said with yourself with um, Live Ocean and what you guys are trying to bring awareness and the hierarchy, um, the golf and all the rest of it that's starting to feed on. And mm-hmm. that's why, like you said, there's been no cancel culture around it. It's been a clear message and making a difference. Yeah. I, you know, that negative kind of energy that people might bring where it's like, Oh, I want you to fail. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think you can do this. I actually love that. You feed <laughs> off that? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I feed off it. If somebody, literally, if somebody tells me something to my face, like, I don't think you can do this. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, well, Okay, watch me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was, I was same one, but I know where, I know where my strengths are. Mm. Um, so I've got things I'm good at, and I've got things I'm really shit at. Yeah. Um, don't put me on a bicycle. I used to be a very strong swimmer, but not long distance when I used to do life saving things like that. So yeah. So if you come to me, I've got that fuck you attitude. Like, oh, you want to take me on? Let's go. Because I've got that thing that where I know that I'm decent on, I will fight till I die. Whether I win or not, that's a different discussion. So um, I had this, just funny enough, you might find this funny, I had a challenge with my daughter the other day. So she's uh, uh, 14 years old, goalkeeper, f- uh, f- field hockey, and, and that's also a pretty crazy position where you're standing and balls can hit in your face. And she was she was training with a coach just a couple of weeks ago and tried to motivate her and she because she was going through a bit of a moment and I turned around and I said, come on, you know, um, come on, Mills, you got to push through. And she always does this whole thing, turns around and looks at me and goes, Dad, you've never been a field hockey, you've never been a goalie, you don't know what it feels like, you don't know what I'm going through. So I'm like, okay, props to you, full respect. I can't resonate with you because I haven't been in. So I'm like, so I'm sitting there watching the session going, okay. So I shout out to her, I said to her, okay, if your coach in a few weeks' time brings his kit down because he's a, he's, um, um, he's a big guy and I'll be able to fit his kit, I'll get in the goals. I've never played hockey. I've never played it. I said, I'll get in the goals and we'll do a one-on-one, me go against you, that you've been training for two and a half years. I've never been trained and we'll do a session and we'll see who wins on this. And she goes, oh, okay, okay. And then she goes, yeah. And she goes, how do you think you're doing? I go, I'll win. She goes, oh, aren't you just big-headed? And I said, no, I'm not big-headed. I just got that I am not going to give up till I win attitude where you, you know, want to go, okay, when I almost build up a little bit of an excuse of why you won't do it. I said, let's go at it because then we can resonate on the same level. It's sort of building up the motivation. So, yeah, it might be in a few weeks' time I'm standing in goals. A <laughs> coach who's a national level hockey player, um, yeah, he's going to be uh, full, full tall to hit at me balls at, in the goals. <laughs> I might come back and go, I had it. It was the worst idea. But then at least I can resonate and understand what she, what she's going through at that moment and then also being able to support her in the right way. Mm. Hey, good luck to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I love the attitude. It's, oh, it's I know it's just boring. I'm, 
Um, let's bring it back down to, to your swim, right? So I can imagine people listening or watching going, cool, 100K swim. How the hell do you train for that? Mm. <laughs> how, do you, you, how do you train for 100 kilometers even running? Like, you know, cycling, it's like I know I've spoken right. to guys that have done, you know, old, um, Ironmans and the big ones, and it's just the distance is ridiculous. Like how do you train for 100 kilometers in the water? Mm. So I had a pretty good base coming into it. Like we talked about earlier, I had done a 45-kilometer mm-hmm. swim. 100 kilometers is a little bit longer, <laughs> a, little bit <laughs> a, a little bit of a step up. So there were some changes that I needed to, to make to mm-hmm. my training philosophy. Typically what I've done in training for these 20 to, let's say, 50-kilometer type distances mm-hmm. is I've built up to a peak of double the mileage of whatever I'm going to be facing on the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, across a week. So if it's a 30-kilometre swim, then 60 kilometres is my peak, and I'll build up to that and then hold that peak and then taper off for two to three weeks before eventually hitting the hitting the swim. And that's tended to work pretty well for me. Uh, it's something that's reasonable and realistic when you're doing 60 kilometres mm-hmm. or so of, of training a week. My peak up until that point, I think, was about – but before I started training for the Great Barrier Swim, Swim for the Gulf was about 80 kilometres per week, mm-hmm. which is a significant amount of training. You know, to break that down into hours, that would be, let's say, on average, three kilometres per hour, taking into account rest breaks, feeding, all the rest of it. That is how 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 many hours? About 25, mm-hmm. let's say, hours per week just yep. of swimming. And then... You've got your recovery on top of that, your stretching. You still have a day job, right? I still have a day job. <laughs> it's about 50 hours or so a week. So, you know, there's not a lot of time for, for stuff around that. So when I started thinking about the training philosophy for, that I was going to adopt for this this one for the golf was I couldn't really realistically use the same philosophy of building up to double the, double the mileage over mm-hmm. the – course of a week as my peak because that would mean 200 kilometers of swimming <laughs> just to maybe put that into relativity for people normally you say one kilometer of swimming is like four kilometers of running mm-hmm. so it'd like, be like me uh, doing one. 800 kilometers of running across a week which is just batshit crazy too much <laughs> too much time yeah i could do it but i'd have to give up my day <laughs> job i think <laughs> and so i started Instead, I I built on a philosophy of building up to a peak of the total distance, which would be 100 kilometers. Mm -hmm. And in August of 2022, I started that journey. I I built up really nicely from about 30 kilometers per week. And and the idea was to get up to a peak of, again, about 100 Mm k's per week and then taper off for a few weeks leading into the event. Unfortunately, I got injured during Mm -hmm. that journey. So in... December at the beginning of December I picked up a an injury to my left shoulder which I'm still working through now and I held that across December January which kept me out of out of any kind of serious training really I was doing a lot of work on the stationary bike mm. uh, a lot of kick in the pool yep. because I couldn't really swim properly but it was it was a poor substitute for for proper training so there was my what I now refer to as kind of my first phase which was this really nice training arc from about 30 kilometers per week to 75 kilometers per week. 
And then post injury, when we decided to actually go forward, we had to reset the window for the end of April mm. and start that second phase. Uh, it involved a little bit of a different approach, which was now building in some strength and conditioning work. So a couple of workouts a week in the gym, a couple of pool mm. sessions, and then two long back-to-back ocean swims. And that was building up from three hours back-to-back to the target was 12 hours back-to-back. Mm. And that would all be over the weekends because I do work during mm. the week. And ultimately what it culminated in was uh, three back-to-back eight-hour swims over – it was the pool on – one day, the pool the next day, and then the ocean the following day. And so that, that really helped that lo- those long, very aerobic-style mm. swims, just getting the mileage and getting my body used to what it was like to train under fatigue and to keep going and, and pushing through that. And also I added in some other elements that were specific to what I was going to be encountering because I've never – swum up until recently i hadn't hadn't done the day night day Mm -hmm. thing where you're actually swimming through an entire night so i built in these ocean swims where i was swimming through parts of the night uh, starting at 2 a.m 3 a.m in the morning and swimming until midday and that really helped to get a sense of safety around night Mm -hmm. swimming and also just giving my body a bit of a uh rack up to Mm -hmm to get it acclimatized to swimming at odd hours of the day. So that was the, that was the main kind of philosophy around the training. You want to simulate as close as you can without actually doing the yeah. thing, what, what you're, what you're likely to encounter. So bringing in these different bits and pieces to build this big jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> um, and you doing these, so when you're training in these open swims, you're just, just doing these by yourself, right? Normally you're going down to Takapuna and you're just swimming down in the bay there for yourself, by yourself for eight hours, were you saying eight hours from 2 a.m. in the morning? Um, there's no there's no one ever come out to you and you come out and go and like, no one's ever phoned and said, hey, there's some random dude at like four o'clock doing laps in Takapuna or nothing weird like that's happened? Luckily not on this training journey. <laughs> but as you say, getting in the ocean at 2 a.m. and then swimming on my own until 10 a.m., whatever the time is that I get out. So uh, I guess most people were sleeping and they (laughs) couldn't really (laughs) raise their concerns. I have had an um, uh, ambulance and police chopper called on me before because (laughs) there was a concerned citizen who – Thought I was going out into some overly rough conditions with a <laughs> with a friend, and then as we came back, we yeah we saw the ambulance back at the beach and and police squadrons that apparently had been going up and down the coast trying to find you. Yeah, <laughs> but in the in the training journey for this one, no, it, it was it was pretty good. It, it was interesting. I'd go out at you know again starting at like two a.m. in the morning, and there'd be a group of like young kids that were <laughs> drinking <Drink> out <laughs> out on. T- Jacobuna um, uh, boat ramp around there, and I'd be getting in the water. So yeah. it was just this really strange kind of juxtaposition of <laughs> of the different activities. I can imagine they looked over at you and had some interesting questions, like, "What <laughs> yeah. the hell are you doing at two a.m. climbing in the water?" Yeah, probably. <laughs> I can't imagine it being caught or warm or anything, and just you know, mm. no. I mean, it, it it wasn't super warm, and yeah. I was I was training without a 
a cap as well yeah. to really get that cold adaptation. So yeah. that was quite helpful. When I was training, it was peak of summer really. So it was starting to get a little bit cooler from probably end of March yeah, sure. or so. And I was doing it end of April was when the window was opening. And so I knew that I needed to also build in that cold adaptation. Mm-hmm. That was another mm-hmm. one of these jigsaw pieces. So that was a really useful, useful way of doing that. And if it was raining, good. Yeah. You know, if it's windy, good. <laughs> if it's rough conditions, good. It's all, it all helps. I, I want to get on to why that, that specific time period, but talk me through pool swim. Do you have a relationship with the pool wherever you were? Because, I mean, eight hours in the pool is like you using up a lane and you just in there. Or do you just go down to the public pool and just swim for eight hours and not worry about everyone else around you? Because that's quite an interesting one with the noise and they keep moving and you just keep going. Yeah, it's just paying my fee to, <laughs> to get into the pool. I go to the Olympic mm-hmm. around the corner in, in Newmarket and that's my normal pool, but it's got pretty high chlorine levels. So yeah. I can't stay in there longer than about five hours before I get this chlorine cough. Mm-hmm. So I try to go to pools for these longer sessions where it doesn't have as high levels of chlorine. So I'll pay my fee, I'll jump in a lane, I put my food on the side, my food and my drinks, and then I'm off. And most of the time there's not really anybody else in, in the lane. People might come and go. But yeah. It's a nice distraction in a, in a way because eight hours of pool swimming is... You must have had time. some sort of staff ask you or something. Did no one pick up that this dude hasn't left the lane in like four hours? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Like, oh, isn't everyone just paying attention to their own world that no one's realized that you're still in that lane like eight hours later? Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you get people saying like, oh, what are you training for? <laughs> <laughs> but most of the time, I guess I, I just get looks as opposed to comments. Yeah. Mm. So it should have like this board of what do you think he's training for? <laughs> like next <laughs> yeah. to you, right? What yeah, am yeah. I training for? Right right here. And then you get out, you can see all these little, you know, Definitely. All, all these little messages. I think when people see the food on, on the side <laughs> of the pool, they're like, what the heck is going on? Like yeah. the, the old adage is that you don't eat when you're swimming. Yeah. So people always ask me, don't you get indigestion and stuff? And I'm like, no, it's actually perfectly fine mm-hmm. to eat while you're swimming. Yeah. You're not, you're not going to drown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've had to train myself up for that. But when somebody sees all of my bananas and gels and <laughs> drinks on the on the side of the pool, they, they do a bit of a double take and they're like, yeah, okay, so <laughs> something's a bit different here. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that's great. Um, so training up uh, the window. So obviously we're talking about the end of April. It ended up being May due to you know some weather and so forth. Why that window? Why, why colder than warmer? It wasn't my first choice. Mm-hmm. So we were originally looking at a window that would be in March, mm-hmm. and that's when waters were likely to be warmer. Unfortunately, I did get injured mm-hmm. across December mm-hmm. and January, and coming out of that, we either had a decision to postpone the swim for another year. My wife's pregnant. I knew that that would be mm-hmm. challenging, <laughs> training for a 100-kilometer mm-hmm. swim under those conditions. Or we could push forward. But what that meant is I needed enough time to ramp up. So we were looking at the end of January. How long is it realistically going to take to build up? And I was thinking in my mind it's probably about two and a half months from here. So then we reset it for the end of April, which brought with it some other challenges and potential risks. So the risk of hypothermia, Mm -hmm. for example, was a lot stronger at the end of April 
than it was at the end of end of March. So the the window was twenty fifth of April to the fifth of May, mm-hmm. and that was really pegged around the neap tide. Mm-hmm. So there's two tides: there's a neap tide and a spring tide, and that's to do with the position of the moon relative to the Earth mm-hmm. and and sun as well. When when there's a spring tide, it means that there's more a higher volume of of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the difference between the low tide and high tide is higher. Mm. So you've got you've got more of a difference between the two. And if I'm uh, swimming on a spring tide, I know that it's going to be beneficial if it's behind me. It's going to be really hard work mm. if I'm swimming into it. And we were going to be facing about five or six tide cycles, depending on how long the swim went for. And so we wanted the weakest tide possible so that it wasn't really a factor. And we got somewhere between a neap and a spring at the at the end of the day, mm. what, it, what it worked out to be swimming across the 2nd and 3rd of May. So the neap wasn't exactly from the 25th of April to the 5th of May, but we also had to consider that we're trying to get a window that's going to be suitable for the weather and getting good weather across two days is actually going to be bloody hard. And also being able to give enough time that uh, we can get the crew to commit mm-hmm. as well, not just saying, oh, let's go out on this day. Yeah. So, Because how big was the crew? We had, I think it was 16 people out on mm-hmm. the water across two boats. Yeah. So it's a pretty decent crew. Yeah, and <laughs> people that uh, have their own... Lives. Responsibilities, <laughs> obligations, lives, <laughs> and it ended up being that they dropped all of that within a very short <laughs> space of time. We made the decision to go ahead two days before the start of the swim on the Sunday, <laughs> met the following day, the following morning, and uh, travelled out to Great Barrier Island on the boat, and then they spent two days as well out on the water, <laughs> plus for them <laughs> inevitably some recovery yeah. because – they were throwing their guts up. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was not nice weather. So for them it was a massive sacrifice. And I think that's another thing that people don't actually see is how much of a team there is that supports these kind of activities. Yep. It's massive. Uh, I, I totally is. It's if you we see in the news a individual or a team coming across the line, but don't realize the the support or what's there to get them to that point, right? Mm. Um, and what else is needed? Like um, uh, in a weird one, I'm a massive uh, uh, Wrexham fan, and welcome to Wrexham. That's been all over TV in the last few months, and that whole story, and then the reality show that hangs behind it. And obviously, you look at this, you know, this this football team gets promoted; it's owned by the whole. But because they did that series, you see everything. You see all the behind the scenes, the decisions, and everything else that goes into run just a fifth league basic club just to get him to play, uh, you know play a game on the weekend, and then mm. realize that there's not just eleven guys in the field. There's maybe three times that size behind helping support and and you know getting them through the process. And it was quite cool with 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 that journey. How because these guys are fifth league and they're not they're not these you know, top league football celebrities that only think about themselves, they actually, a lot of them turn around and we're like, thanks for that, thanks for that, thanks for that person, that group, that organisation, they had that that integrity, integrity and respect to go back and you can see that there's, there's more to, there's the person that did it or the team that did it, but fundamentally it's part of the puzzle, your jigsaw, with everyone else that's, that's helping out. Yeah, and same again with 
like Tour de France, which I've I've recently <laughs> been watching that documentary. There's a new one, yeah, yeah, that is pretty good. <laughs> it is, but you do you really get the sense of the people that are sitting behind that and how much goes into getting them to the start line and supporting them through that those three weeks, which is massive, massive logistical effort and mm-hmm. uh, physical effort, obviously. But for those riders, for those people to be able to do what they can do to push to the limits, mm-hmm. they do need somebody that's actually in their corner that's helping them. And, and you see that across any sport. Yep. With any any individual that's ever accomplished anything that seems uh, outrageous or amazing or that's kind of uh, elite in a sense that there's always – people there that are yeah. propping them up yeah totally true so you guys you guys you know make a couple of couple of days out from the day make the decision cruise out you guys are over there you're going to start 33 hours in the journey talk us through how what does that look like how long are you swimming how's your meals what's and then also the one of the biggest questions i can imagine most of the audience will be is talk me through like the mental state of doing one thing or the same thing for like I call, most of us in society can't pay attention for five minutes and you did something for 33 hours. You know, I, I know there might, might have been a change. Oh, I'm swimming to the left now, I'm swimming to the right now. But fundamentally, it's the same framework what you're doing for 33 hours. Mm. Yeah. So we, we decided to go ahead on the Tuesday, Tuesday 2nd yeah. of May. And while the weather wasn't ideal, it was the best opportunity that we had and we decided to grab it. So we went out to Great Barrier Island and it was pretty rough. We spent the night at uh, Arama, which is a community based mm. out at Karaka Bay, which was to be the start point. The night before, we're just getting things ready, uh, having a bit of a crew briefing, mm. having some basic kind of food, nothing that you know you don't want to load up on too mm. much carbs. You want to have a nice kind of meal beforehand. So just kind of going through the motions and trying to get into a positive mental Headspace. Mm. One of my biggest concerns at that stage was actually getting enough sleep, mm. which you didn't. I, I I did on this one. Yep. Did I you? had I, for uh, for the night before anyway. Mm. So I've had some terrible sleeps mm-hmm. the night before because you know you're really thinking about the challenge that that you're going to be going through, and your body is kind of preparing in a sense and almost <laughs> like fighting against mm. it. And so I, I I was a little bit concerned about that, that I wouldn't be able to get a good sleep. And then knowing that I was going to be not sleeping mm. the next night because I was going to be swimming. And fortunately, I was able to have a really good night's sleep. We went to bed at about 10 o'clock or so. Mm. It was just beautiful out there as well, beautifully still. There's no city glow or anything mm. like that. Just pitch black. <laughs> and in uh, these little cabins and woke up in the morning and then again in the morning, you're just kind of going through the routine thing, right? Routines like keeping it, keeping it really simple, not adding any anything new into the mix. Mm-hmm. We had our breakfast. I'd already planned my breakfast weeks in advance. Yep. It was going to be oats and beetroot juice, and then we start get, uh, going through the feeding plan with the mm-hmm. crew. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the time to comes get, to actually yeah. start the thing. <laughs> So walk out to the boat ramp, get laid up with the pseudocreme, which was the like a, a sun mm-hmm. protection, basically. There wasn't a lot of sun, so that didn't matter too much. And then another layer of half lanolin, half petroleum jelly, mm-hmm. 
that was to help against chafing and potentially a little bit of warmth as well. And then all of a sudden after going through these routines, it's actually time to start. And from in terms of what's happening in my mind during that build-up and to starting it, I'm trying not to overwhelm myself with what is about to mm-hmm. come yeah. and just stay in the moment as much as possible and not thinking about the next two days, it's thinking about the next hour. Mm-hmm. And that really helps as a way of breaking it down. There's One of my favorite sayings is the only way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. <laughs> and so doing something like this, you you do have to really chunk it up to to eat those eat those bites <laughs> as, as as you go rather than the whole elephant. I did a little bit of visualization mm-hmm. before I started, which I think was was helpful again, like I had done that for weeks and weeks in advance, just swimming the route before I actually swam it mm-hmm. and getting a sense of what it would feel like and what are the landmarks that I'm passing and is there anything else that I need to look out for? What's my emotional state? Anyway, so eventually start this thing and and I'm just trying to keep my mind as empty as possible. The first 5Ks or so is beautiful, beautifully still inside the bay and then we exit the safe harbour of Karaka Bay and we're out into the channel between Great Barrier and Little Barrier. Mm-hmm. It's only eight knots of wind, which is awesome, but there's swells starting to roll through, so it's it's getting a little bit more interesting but not completely challenging. And and then for the next 15 kilometres or so, it's pretty processional. Just you know, swim, 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 stop, uh, have a quick feed, not touching the boat or anything mm-hmm. like that, right, just treading water. Yep. And I'm just keeping in the moment as much as I can. And it's, it's quite exciting because there's the crew around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're actually being able to put this – dream in a sense into into reality and it's almost like a, a weird moment where you uh where you've been building up for it uh, to it for so long and then all of a sudden it's happening so yeah we have a have a great first 20 kilometers or so and then i start getting some gut distress and that's not so good that that's kind of the first sign that things are going wrong so in terms of my mental state that's when the first of the negative spirals kind of started. And one thing, because I think this was part of your question as well, one one thing that I've found with those situations is that they're inevitable, that you will go and you will have those negative thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I'm in my head for a lot of this. The crew's obviously there talking me through some things, but a lot of it is, a lot of my time is spent in my own mind. And you need to have some tools on hand to be able to pull yourself out of yep. out of that when it when it happens it's not enough and so at that point it was triggering those tools that i had to be able to try and pull myself out of that negative space as, as well as i could and that worked pretty well um are you are you at this moment when you're having this judgment or so are you like treading water and talking to the boat or are you on your back or I mean, obviously, swimming, communicating the boat, it's a bit hard. So when you're having these moments, you said you're actually talking to the people in the boat. How is that? Are you just having a? Are you actually stopping to have a moment to almost recenter yourself, or what? What, what were you doing then? Still, 
swimming. Still swimming, yeah. Still going. And the the basic kind of structure of, of the 33 hours was every 40 minutes would be punctuated by a feeding break. Oh, okay. It would yeah. be about 30 seconds or so. It was mostly liquid feeds. Mm. And the crew would chuck it out over the side of the boat. I couldn't touch the boat. That's one of the rules. And there might be some words that are exchanged quite quickly during that time. But otherwise, I'm in my head working it through, mm. teasing it through. So it's, yeah, not not so much that I'm stopping. I'm just continuing to let my body do its thing. Mm-hmm. And it is that mind-body disconnect in a, in a sense. Yeah. Just letting my body continue to turn the arms over and then working through triaging these mental challenges that I'm going through at the time to bring myself back to that neutral state. So it's pretty much because you've done it so much with the swimming, it almost becomes like the habit, right? So your body's just doing its thing and literally you stepped away from your body in a weird way and you're having this war with your mind to keep going, I'm struggling, what should I do, why am I doing this and all that whole judgment and trying to break through that to get it back that you can then become one one with oneself again. Yeah, and just being – self-aware enough Mm. that you can know what's and hear the thoughts that are going on in your mind and appreciating that those aren't really your thoughts and that these are things that you need to work through to get yourself out out of that space so uh, i've done like a lot of meditation and that's been Mm. incredibly useful for training myself in a way to be aware be conscious of what's going on in my mind and that the thoughts that are there are not necessarily mine and that they're, uh, they can be controlled in mm-hmm. a sense. I, I, I think uh, control is, is potentially the wrong word, but they can be managed. And if you don't have that ability to be able to be self-aware enough of your own thoughts, then it can actually be really difficult to get that mind-body disconnect and the disconnect of your thoughts from these external thoughts mm. as well. So one question I've got asked personally, because how deep is the water in your deepest part when you swim in? Is it very deep at all? That must be really deep. <laughs> I couldn't tell you <laughs> but, exactly how yeah. deep, but, uh, you know, kilometres off the coast and yeah. must be. So some sort of animal swimming underneath you? <laughs> Mafia. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah any any worries for those like uh, great whites or anything else uh, that uh, in that route? Any mm. any hiccups during the swim that possibly could have come across? Sharks were a potential risk mm-hmm. through the swim, and that potential route is known for its hammerhead sharks, its bronze whaler sharks, yeah. and potentially Marco sharks, mm. the odd great white. So there, w- there was always a consideration for what we might consider in terms of marine life and what the crew would do in that uh, in that moment mm-hmm. if there was some kind of a, uh, not just a risk anymore, but something that was happening. Mm-hmm. So we talked through those different situations and what I would do and how the crew would react if something were to happen. Obviously, if a shark decides to <laughs> take me out, then it, yeah. it's going to be all over very quickly. But the risk of that happening in reality is so, so small. Mm-hmm. And I say this to people that the chance of the the um, 
a likelihood of, of a shark attack, the number of shark attacks that happen per year is actually less than the number of people that die from having a coconut fall on their head. <laughs> so when you put it into those terms, it, it's like, oh, okay, like I'm probably spending a lot more of my time in their environment. So yeah. I've, I'm, I'm increasing, my, yeah. <laughs> increasing my risk. Yeah. But at the same time, they're not really there to... Chomp on your leg. Yeah, and it, it's it's a case in in many instances where it's just mistaken identity. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we knew that we were traveling this route where we were probably likely to encounter some kind of marine life. We didn't mm-hmm. at the end of the day. <laughs> I have uh, seen sharks in Fovo Strait when I was swimming from Stewart Island back to Bluff. But not on this, not on this swim. It was fine. How did that make you feel when you saw the sharks? Were they a, a distance away or close they were? Enough? Yeah, they were quite far below me. Oh yeah. So there was a group of about twelve sharks that was just <laughs> circling in the water below me, <laughs> and it was far enough below that I didn't have any major concerns. My first reaction was one of panic <laughs> when, when <laughs> yeah. I first saw them. <laughs> And then that transformed pretty quickly into just curiosity. And the moment passed by pretty quickly because they were there. And then, uh, you know, 10, 15 seconds later, I'd swum past and and I could no longer longer see them. There was one, the crew didn't make me aware of this until afterwards, but there was a shark that was hanging around closer to the surface. Uh, It was not super close. Mm. But they were keeping a, a tab on it. They just didn't let me know that until after the event. Until afterwards, yeah. <laughs> I totally understand that. Um, so now you, you you go on this event. Now you know first ten hours, you know ten twelve hours. When you start getting into the teens or in the twenties, you know when your body needs to wants to crave sleep or real rest. Or, you know, are you actually sleeping through this event, or did you go thirty three straight? No, no sleeping. So it is just 33 hours of swimming. So I woke up on Tuesday mm-hmm. morning and then we get into the water about three hours later and the first opportunity I have to sleep is I think Thursday, early Thursday morning when I'm in the hospital. Yeah. So it is quite a long time without having any kind of sleep. Between I calculated it out that between Tuesday morning when I first started and Friday evening of that same week, I had eight hours sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so there was there were some concerns around sleep deprivation mm. and how I would react to that yep. and how my body and mind would respond to that. My probably biggest concern, because I hadn't encountered this or actually worked through it in exactly the same situation, was swimming through an entire night, mm-hmm. but it did turn out to be a non-event. I took a couple of caffeine tablets at would have been about seven o'clock, eight o'clock of that night, mm-hmm. and that worked really well. I had some gels that have had a little bit bit of caffeine in them. Great stimulant. I don't normally drink coffee, so it, it actually, oh, it actually really helped. Yep. Yeah, and then the lack of sleep probably impacted me in other ways that I wasn't quite aware of but I wasn't it's not like I was tired Mm -hmm. and I still when I got out of the water I wasn't physically tired it was a strange thing I was most certainly fatigued and I was starting to see things because I hadn't slept in a while but I I didn't have this massive craving for for sleep that you might think your your body after you do something like this 
so charged up on all kinds of weird chemicals, <laughs> adrenaline pumping through and the last thing that you want to do in that moment is actually fall fall asleep. It's a it, it's quite strange in a in a lot of ways. So you come you come up to the end, finish the right, finish the swim, get out. Is there that that um, you know that vision that you um, that you've been thinking through? Was there that that excitement, that happiness, or was it I'm I'm happy that I'm finished? Mm. You know, what was the moment of like you coming through? And was there any realization then? I visualized a, a lot in the lead up uh, around that finish mm-hmm. and how that would make me feel emotionally. And as I was going through the visualization, it did actually make me really emotional mm-hmm. and it got the tears going at times as well. When I was going through the, the and, and thinking through those emotions, it was really that feeling of, like elation I think and satisfaction and it was similar but not the same when I when I did actually end up mm-hmm. doing it it was a sense of relief from <laughs> from just uh, not having to swim any further yeah. <laughs> and that the pain could then at that moment end because I was in quite extraordinary levels of pain mm-hmm. physical pain and then just a sense of pride was the biggest thing pride in what not only I had achieved, but we as the crew had achieved uh, over the last two days. And that was a, a really strong emotion. Mm-hmm. And I, I I had that from basically as soon as I was in the ambulance. So I, I finished, finished the swim, walk out, and then immediately taken into an ambulance that was pre-planned to be parked up mm-hmm. and, and monitor monitor my health and as I'm lying in the bed, I'm there with a couple of crewmates, and they ask me, "What you know? What are your thoughts on mm. the swim?" And it is just that I'm just proud. Yeah, mm. it's amazing. I know there's a funny story that you had no clothes, and your old, <laughs> and your old man had to give that, you some clothes and yeah, hospital, right? right? Yeah. So I had a bag that was on the boat. Mm-hmm. When we were planning this, we weren't planning twenty to thirty knot winds and two meter swells <laughs> for the swim. And so the boat was, I was actually going to be able to get my gear off the boat. It was absolutely drenched because (laughs) (laughs) there were waves going everywhere. So no, I didn't have any clothes in the ambulance. I basically just had my togs. I was there in my, uh, yeah, in in togs and uh, sand on my feet. And that's how I was transported to hospital (laughs) as well. And then my dad, (laughs) luckily he came by and, he stripped off. He, he got down to got down to his um, his undies, and <laughs> he gave me his jeans and like a, a shirt and and uh, jacket that he had at the time. I didn't actually need them, funnily enough, because yeah. I hadn't ended up having an overnight stay in hospital. And my wife came back later the next day <laughs> with my clothes. But yeah, it's quite quite funny. <laughs> Props, your old man. Yeah, <laughs> that's. Uh, uh, would have been funny um, dropping the jeans you know? <laughs> <laughs> and just no context seeing him walk out of the hospital. <laughs> as well. Oh, that's amazing. Um, one thing before we almost run up today's show is I know yourself in partnership with uh, Live Ocean. Talk me through that quickly. Mm. What are they? What does it stand for? What What are they trying to achieve? Yeah. So when I was cooking up the idea for this swim, I wanted to make it something that was bigger than me. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to draw attention to a cause that was 
that was meaningful for me personally. And I've done a lot of swimming in the Hauraki Golf, and a lot of my history sits in, in that body of water as well. So it was really meaningful to me, not only the oceans generally, but that particular slice. And I had seen through my training not only these amazing things, but also the degradation that had come about through unsustainable practices. Mm. I've seen the sedimentation in the water. There's massive amounts. I'd seen the kinna around our islands whelping, uh, wiping out the, uh, the kelp. Mm-hmm. And I'd seen the general decrease in marine life. And as I came to learn more and more about this, and not only those factors, but also a bunch of other ones and talking to scientists and uh, experts uh, around what was happening, it impassioned me and wanted to, it made me want, want to raise my voice for that. Mm-hmm. And so off the back of that, looking at what I could do for the Hauraki Golf, I partnered up and targeted Live Ocean. Now Live Ocean is a charity that's uh, that was founded by Peter Burling and Blair Chuk, mm-hmm. the America's Cup sailors, and they had a similar experience. They were doing the round the round the world ocean race, mm-hmm. and they just saw how devastating it was in certain parts of the world to see the ocean in the state that it was. Mm-hmm. And seeing in our own backyard that it that it was happening as well, and so it's re- the charity has really been founded around this uh, aim and ambition to improve the health of our ocean. So it's a marine conservation charity at at, at its essence. And so I I partnered up with Live Ocean, and they were completely behind the idea, mm-hmm. even though it was something that was very unique to them. And through that, they were able to really help with creating the platform Mm -hmm. and driving the awareness and attention to this cause, which ultimately was what we wanted to achieve. Not just that it was this physical endeavor, Mm -hmm. but that it was something that was more importantly highlighting the state of the Hauraki Gulf. And so now off the back of that, I think we've still got more work to do. Mm -hmm. We've still got to, do more campaigning yeah. for that to actually get some action. That's the hard part. I think through this, we have been able to raise some pretty good levels of attention mm-hmm. and off the back of that awareness, but the action is always the, the hard part. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've got this really nice partnership now and I think we'll probably see some more things in the future. <laughs> yeah, that get, um, gets me on to my, my, my next and last question for you is, What's next? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> to most people, you've yet, you haven't climbed a mountain. You've climbed like Mount Everest in, in respect to what you achieved. Like, how do you like a what's next? And then also, how do you still keep yourself humble, not that you don't lose yourself down the mountain, right? Yeah. I, in terms of the humility side of things, mm. like that's just it's in my nature, and it, mm. it's I think you'd you'd really be hard pressed to grind that out of me mm. so uh it's a good point though you know you've always got to stay in touch with where what is your base message like yeah. what what is the purpose of actually doing this not it's great that a whole lot of people are watching it but why are we 
mm-hmm. at, at our core. Why are we still doing this? So the what's next is not yet released. <laughs> uh, toward the end of next year, I'll probably be pulling something else together and we'll see what that looks like. Still an idea that I'm working through mm-hmm. in my head, but yeah, there'll, there'll be something more for sure. And I don't think the work's done yet. Yeah, it's amazing, Jonah. Is there anything else you want to leave our audience with as we end off today's show? Anything that to think about or thought for the day or something like that? I think it's if if there's one thing that I've found through my journey and looking back over the last decade, two decades really, mm-hmm. is that it's to try and find, and, and this is the, this is really life for a, uh, <laughs> for a lot of people, is trying to find the thing that, that really gets you going. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, continuing to be authentic to who you are at your innermost being. So I'm fortunate in the sense that I, I think I've been able to find that thing, mm-hmm. that combination of ultra marathon swimming or ultra endurance sports mm. and ocean conservation. And through those, I've been able to find the highest expression of myself in a sense. And so I can't count myself really lucky that I've been able to find that. Mm-hmm. And I've, I had been searching for it for a, for a long time and trying all kinds of different things. And the only thing I'd, I think I'd say to people is if you haven't found that thing or what feels right for you and that feels authentic for you to keep trying to keep searching to not stop until you have found Mm -hmm. it because there is something out there and I think the greatest tragedy is if you go through life without searching for it but without finding it either that it would just be such a shame for Mm -hmm. you to ignore what you could be what your potential could be and so that that's the message i think for for everybody is that if you are on that path it's to not get disparaged if you haven't come across Mm -hmm. it yet to keep searching (laughs) because i've had some super low moments and i'm sure I, i will continue to have some low moments but what grounds me and what brings me back is that i have this purpose and that is yeah it's powerful it's amazing, John, and that's uh, such a great message out there, and I think a great way to end off the show, and a, a massive thanks for you to coming on and sharing your message and the change you're trying to make, and hopefully this keeps, uh, this show does a little bit more to keep more awareness to what you're trying to do yourself and Live Ocean and everything else, and, and we'll be excited to see the, how do I say, crazy idea you come up with next, because, you know, um, I can imagine it's something bigger, something bolder, something um, crazier is likely what you're going to go with, And but I know it'll make a major difference and bring positive impact um, to society and, uh, and the ocean. So I'm excited to see that, and um, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks, brother. Um, that was good. Awesome. And to everyone else, thanks for coming over to the Wolf of Queen Street podcast. As I always say, um, to me, it's not about saying to share and to like the show. It's about seeing if there's something that resonated with what myself or what John has said today. If there's something that made an impact to yourself, just take that, take that away with you and let that help yourself and your community and tribe because we need to stand together. We need to make a difference and we can do that by seeing what's important and growing from it. And as John has said, 
try to chase what is your passion or find what is your passion and build over that over time. And we can all make a difference slowly as we work towards that. But again, thanks for coming over to the show. And as always, hope to see you again.